You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. We're going to finish chapter 3 this morning. If you're new here, we go through books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And uh, we're going through the book of Philippians. And it's an exciting study. It's an amazing study. The, The book of Philippians has absolutely blown my mind with how challenging it is, how how revolutionary it is, how opposed it is to our flesh. And th- this morning is no different. As Paul basically talks about our citizenship. You guys understand what citizenship is. We are citizens of the United States. Just like the Philippians were citizens of Rome. Even though they didn't live in Rome. In fact, uh, Philippi was in Greece. But they were citizens of Rome. And It's important that we understand that even though we live on the earth, we are actually citizens of heaven. And it's when we begin to realize that, that it changes the way we live. And that's why I've called this morning's message, Joy in Realization. Each week we've been looking at a different aspect of joy in Philippians because the book of Philippians is all about joy. It's all about having joy in the midst of difficult circumstances and and difficulties. And in this morning, Paul says, look, you can have joy in your life when you begin to realize who you are in Christ, that you are a citizen of heaven. And so, Ryan, start to act like it. Start to live as if you're a citizen of heaven. Start to have who you are begin to influence how you live. And so let's read our text and we'll go back and we'll look at basically two points. Citizens of the earth and what they look like and citizens of heaven and what they look like. Starting in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to himself. And Lord, as we open your word once again, God, is with the understanding that apart from your Holy Spirit, these are just words on a page. Lord, we need you to illuminate. We need you to activate our minds so that we can hear from you. We, we want to have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning, God. Speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing Paul talks about is what it looks like to be a citizen of the earth. And In the preceding verses, Paul has been laying out for us the fact that he is a person who is totally sold out to Jesus. He says in verses 10 and 11 that his one passion was to know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. He he says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind, I reach forward. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This was Paul's passionate pursuit. And in light of that, in verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. 
And so as he's about to talk about what citizens of the earth look like and the fact that we live on the earth and yet we're citizens of heaven, he says, look, I want you to understand that you need to find people who are living, yes, but who are living as if they're citizens of heaven and follow their example. And Paul could say that with confidence in his own life, not arrogantly, not boastfully, but follow my example. I want you guys to think about that for a second. Parents, I want you to think about if you could say this to your kids. Follow my example. Or do we say, do as I say, but not as I do? How many of us have heard that maybe from our own parents? How many of us have said that maybe to our own kids? I don't want you to watch that, but I'm going to watch it. You guys, as Christians, that's unacceptable. Because if it's not appropriate, then it's not appropriate. And of course, you know, there's... Fine line, if you've got little kids, maybe you don't want them to watch, you know, some, some show that's really, you know, just kind of not terrible, but you don't want them to see. But you know what I'm saying. If it's not something that you want your kids to see, you need to be asking yourself, is this something I should see? Is this something I should be partaking in? Is our life an example to our children? Can we say to our coworkers, I want you to follow my example. I want you to, to, to follow me as I follow Christ. Or would our coworkers say, well, why would I do that? Yeah, you say that you're a Christian, but you're the, you're the lousiest worker here. You're the one that cheats on the time card. You're the one that when the boss isn't around, you, you don't work very hard. You're the one that, that hasn't really learned how to do your job very well, and, and you're not good at it because you're lazy or, or whatever the case might be. Can we say to people, follow my example? Can I say that to you as your pastor? I want to be able to. I don't know if I could confidently say it as Paul does, but I want to be able to say that. That's a goal of my life. I want to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not arrogantly, not, not with pride, but just saying, look, my life is sold out for Jesus. And you can follow that example. You guys, that ought to be the goal. Husbands, that you could say to your families, follow me. Follow my example. That, that we would be leaders. And, and not only husbands, but, but all of us that we would be an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says, note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And, and so Paul isn't arrogantly saying, I'm the only one you can follow. He's saying, find people. I'm not around you all the time, so find somebody that you can follow, that can be an example to you. And you guys, all of us, I believe as Christians, should be following somebody. There should be an example, somebody in our life that we're following, that we look up to, that has discipled us, and then behind us, someone is following us. That's ideal. That, that's how it works. That's the discipleship that Jesus wants to see. That there's someone who, who you look up to, someone who you respect, and you're following them. And they're going to let you down. I'm not saying they're perfect. But you see the way they treat their wife. And you know what, you guys? You don't have to say anything. You just live. And, and that's sometimes the best discipleship that there can be. That's sometimes the most powerful form of discipleship. Because people notice. And so husbands, is, is, find someone that, that loves their wife. Pattern your life after theirs. Wives, find a, a, a woman, a wife who, who is respectful and loving and yes, that word you hate, submissive to their husbands in a biblical way, in a, in a way that honors God. Find that wife that you can pattern your role in 
as a wife after. Parents, find people that have gone on before you who have raised kids and have done a good job and and follow in their example. Learn from them. Be humble. It never ceases to amaze me, you guys, how few of us ask questions, how prideful we are. We just go throughout this life, and, and here's this person over here that, that has raised kids and has done a pretty good job. I mean, their kids haven't killed anybody. You know, they've got, they've got jobs. They're, they, they, they made it, right? And we don't ask people anything. We just go throughout life. Or someone who's been saved for years upon years, we don't ask questions. We don't ask them, what books did you read? What's your habits? How, how have you been walking with Jesus for so many years? It, it never ceases to amaze me. I have a friend, a pastor, who, who has a youth pastor on his staff. And this youth pastor had never been a youth, never really been in youth ministry. Had never been a youth pastor, but he was hired on. And this senior pastor, the lead pastor, had been a youth pastor for 20 plus years. A year went by and that young guy never asked the lead pastor a question about youth ministry. So finally, he went into his office. He said, hey, bro, the youth ministry has been driven into the ground. Have you noticed that? You're not doing a very good job. And I was a youth pastor for 20 years, and you haven't asked me one question. Do you think that's stupid? And he said, yeah, it probably is. It's like, why don't you pull your head out and start asking some questions? Start being humble. Do you you ever notice that Jesus is really humble? Why are we so prideful? Find someone that you can follow in their example and ask them questions. Get dirty with them. Here's the thing, you guys, is that when a rabbi would bring disciples around him, which is the whole concept of, of discipleship from the New Testament, it's a very Jewish thing. When a rabbi would bring disciples, they would follow him wherever he went. In fact, some of them would even follow him into the bathroom because they didn't want to miss anything. That might be the time where he had some word of wisdom. And so they would just stand there and wait. And I'm not saying that that's what we do, but you get the point. Is that, man, find some people. Guys, find a man, a real man. Not a real man because he drives a big truck and kills stuff. A real man who loves Jesus with all of his heart. A real man that knows how to treat his wife right. A real man that's had sex with his wife and only her and not a bunch of other women. That's a real man. You find a real woman, ladies, that doesn't gossip about her husband, that doesn't run her husband down, doesn't talk bad about him, doesn't think it's cool to belittle him. That isn't cool. It's a shame. Ladies, find a woman like that who's honorable, a Proverbs 31 woman who you can follow in her footsteps. And then as you do that, guess what? People will come up behind you and they'll want to follow you. We got we to be, quit being so prideful, start asking questions, humble ourselves. Note those who walk in such a way. Be observant. Many of us are just sort of existing in a fog of our own creation. We're not observant. And he goes on to talk about why this is so important. Why it's so important that that we would find people that we could pattern our life after. Because he says, for many walk, in, in the New Testament when it talks about a walk, it's a lifestyle. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, look, the reason why it's so important to find somebody who you can walk 
after and follow in their footsteps is because there's a lot of people who you don't want to follow in their footsteps. And so you better figure it out, young people. You better figure out who you're going to follow and follow the right people. Because there are many who walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping. I don't picture Paul as a real weeping kind of guy. You know what I mean? I don't think Paul was like, you know, tear in my beer kind of guy. I think Paul was a very, very strong guy. Because when you read about the stuff that he went through, he wasn't crying over his circumstances. Remember when he got beat like a rented mule with Silas actually here in Philippi? Remember that? Paul didn't cry like a baby all night long. No, he sang songs to the Lord. He worshiped God and he led many people to Christ that night. Paul's not a weeping kind of guy. He's not a feel sorry for myself kind of guy. But he had a tender heart. And as he writes this, he says, this breaks my heart that people are living inconsistent lives. That they say one thing with their mouth, but their lives don't match up to it. That's what he's talking about. That you're a citizen of heaven as a follower of Jesus Christ. That you are a citizen of heaven. And yet you're living as a citizen of the earth. And Paul says you're an enemy of the cross. Think about that for a second. The magnitude of that statement. An enemy of the cross. Not neutral. Not that you're not doing anything. And that's where a lot of us kind of think we're at, right? I'm just not doing anything for the Lord right now. I'm on, I'm on a vacation. Just, I'm kind of doing my own thing. No, God says you're an enemy of the cross. You're a danger to his kingdom. Apart from the crucified life that we've learned about in Philippians, you guys, we are a danger to God's kingdom. We're not neutral. We're a danger to his kingdom. You're an enemy of the cross. You think about that for a second. We think of the enemies of the cross as being, you know, all the sinners out there. You know, the people that, that we picket, the people that, that we throw stones at. We think of the enemies of the cross, of, of the, the media. It's the news media that suppressed Christianity. It's the school system. It's the government. It's some conspiracy, woo you know, kind of thing. That, that's the enemy of the cross. It's all of the people that are opposed to God. You know what? Maybe they are an enemy of the cross. But here's the thing. An even more powerful enemy of the cross is Christians, followers of Jesus, who have accepted the work of the cross and yet live in opposition to the cross. That's more of an enemy. That's more of an affront. Because basically what you're doing is saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. I see what you did for me, but now I'm going to live my life the way I want because all I want is to have some fire insurance, but I have no intention of living for you. And that's an enemy of the cross, a person who draws near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. A person who, who is one way at church, who, who's one way with their confession, but is a completely different person at work or in their family or in the culture in which they live. And it's inconsistent and it's hypocrisy. And it's the reason why we've lost our influence upon the world. Because the indictment upon the church that we're hypocrites, we may as well, we may as well own up to it because it's true. And yeah, we can make all of the justifications and we can say, well, yeah, but at least we admit we're sinners and at least we understand our need for forgiveness and we have all these justifications, right? But the bottom line is they're right. We say that we, wor- excuse me, that we worship Jesus and yet our lives don't look like him. We're an enemy of the cross. And you guys, it's all about dying to self. 
It's all about taking up the cross and following him. It's being a living sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, there was all kinds of dead sacrifices. There's just a lot of death, a lot of blood, and yet Jesus died once for all. He shed his blood once for all. So he's not interested in death anymore. He's not interested in bloodshed. He's not interested in your works. He's not interested in what you can offer him as far as your goodness and your righteousness. He doesn't want any of that. He wants you to crawl on the altar alive, mind you, and say, here I am. See, a living sacrifice has the capability of crawling off the altar. And we do it all the time, right? You know what? I think I want to live for myself today. I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to dwell on my past. I want to treat people like dirt. I want to yell and scream at my kids. I want to cheat on my taxes. I want to lust in my mind. I, I want to, you know, indulge my flesh. And, and whatever that thing is, we take ourselves off the altar and we say, Lord, thank you for what you did, but for today, I, I'm going to live for myself just, just for a little while. And you know what? All of us struggle with that, and all of us have to do that on a daily basis, and we're off and we're on, and we, we struggle. But some of us crawled off the altar, and we haven't got back on it in a long time. And there's a pattern of your life that has now devolved into what, to the point that you're an enemy of the cross. And Paul describes these people in verse 19, whose end is destruction. Now, Paul is actually referring to people who say they're saved and aren't. And you, you know that as we've been studying Philippians, that Paul's been referencing the Judaizers. That is people that, like Jesus, Jesus is cool, but we also want to keep the law. And you've got to keep all of the dietary rules and regulations and sacrifices and be circumcised. And we've talked about that, the Judaizers. But Paul kind of takes a little bit of a turn here. And what he talks about here in verse 19 is, and what he's describing here as enemies of the cross are people that are using the grace of God as a license to sin. Remember in Romans chapter 6, Paul said, what, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? And how many of us have existed in that? Hey, once saved, always saved. I just, you know, say a little prayer and, and I'm good. And I just ask God to forgive me and I can live like hell. And the Bible doesn't tell us that that is what he wants for us at all. In fact, the Bible says that that is a joke. Shouldn't be named among us. By no means, Paul says. And so he's really talking about people who, who make a claim with their mouth and yet in reality they're not even saved. But, and if that's you this morning, if you're a person who might hear the Lord say, I never knew you, where the confession of your mouth is, Lord, Lord, and then he says, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. If that's you, man, you need to you need to turn your life over to Jesus. You need to get radically saved. You need to have him come into your life and transform your life. But what I want to talk about when he says whose end is destruction, I want to talk about those of us who, who are saved, but whose life is not lining up with our heart, what's going on in our spirit. Who Those of us that are citizens of heaven, and yet we're living as if we're citizens of the earth, and, and Paul says to us that the end of that is destruction. Now, literally, for those that are, have never given their lives to Christ, it's going to be destruction as in eternal damnation. But for those of us that know Jesus, that have committed our lives to him, and have asked him to, to cleanse us, to save us, 
and we've become a follower of His, and yet we've crawled off the altar, we threw the cross that we were supposed to take up aside, and we said, I'm going to do my own thing for a while, and we're living as if we're citizens of the earth. The Bible says the end of that is destruction, which means that when we stand before the Lord at what's called the Bema Seat Judgment, or the, the Judgment Seat of Christ for believers, and your life is set before Him, and I don't know how that's going to work, but your life is set before Him, and in a, in a flame is set to your life. And the Bible says that whatever is gold and silver and precious stones, that is the stuff that we did for him that was eternal. It's going to endure our obedience, our living our life with the understanding that we're a citizen of heaven. It's going to endure. But those things that, that weren't the disobedience, the flesh serving ourself, not using the things that God has given us, guess what? When the flame attaches itself to those things, the Bible says that it will go up in smoke. And it's like wood, hay, and stubble. Now, when I stand before the Lord, you guys, and if you know Jesus this morning, when you stand before the Lord, you're not going to stand before him on account of your sins. But we're going to stand before him on account of what we did with what he gave us. And you guys, I don't want my entire life to just go up in smoke and to look around and go, Man, I guess my life was a total waste. I don't want that. I want to hear him say, well done. We don't want the end of our life to be destruction. He says, whose God is their belly. Now, those of you like me that have a belly and you, know, you like to eat a little bit, maybe you need to exercise a little bit more, um, that's not exactly what he's talking about. It could be part of it. But really this word belly here, it, it's a reference to appetite. And not just with food, but carnal appetites, fleshly appetites whose God is their flesh, it could be translated. In other words, remember the Bob Dylan song, You're Gonna Serve Somebody? And it was like the devil or Jesus, right? Well, really the way that we serve the devil is by serving our flesh. That The devil doesn't typically show up and say, hey, you know, you want to go into partnership? It's just like we live for ourself and we, we, we uh, obey the flesh and, and our God becomes our flesh. And some of us, it's gotten so bad that it, it literally is things that are so apparent, so obnoxious to God. It, it could be alcoholism. It could be, it could be drug addictions. It could be sex addictions. It, it could be cheating and lying and stealing. And, and that's become your God. But you know what, you guys? For most of us, it's probably something a little bit less obvious. It, it's something that just sort of creeps up. That in actuality may have started out okay, but then it spiraled out of control. You remember in the C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia, you remember the, the Turkish delights that the, the little boy would, would eat and, he, and he, he got addicted to them. He thought he'd just eat one, you know, and oh, it was so good. And then he had to eat more and more and more and more. And it controlled his life. And see, that's how many of us are living right now. If it was just one, it wouldn't be so bad, but it's turned in to that thing has controlled you. And you're now being led by your God, the God of your flesh, the thing that makes you feel good, the thing that you want to do. And, and maybe it's a real obvious thing, and maybe it isn't. But you've pulled yourself off the altar, and you've allowed your life to be resurrected, the old man. And now you're living for that, and your God is your flesh. And here's the thing. Whatever God you serve, whether it be Jesus or whether it be your flesh, it's going to be real obvious by what you talk about, by what you think about, 
by how you handle yourself, by how you treat other people, by your priorities. See, what comes out of our mouth, is it, it reveals our heart. And what comes out of our life reveals who our God is. And it's, it's not complicated to figure out who your God is, where your money goes, where your time is spent, how you use your gifts, what you talk about, what drives you, what motivates you, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Your, your God is your fleshly appetites. Is that true of us? Then we're an enemy of the cross. We need to take up our cross and crucify the flesh. Crucify those fleshly appetites. Because you guys, if you feed it, it will grow stronger. It's just like the stray cat. If you feed it, it'll keep coming back. It's no wonder, right? Why is the cat always here? Because we feed it. Why is the flesh so powerful in my life? Because I feed it. Romans talks about not giving any, any whatsoever foothold to your flesh. Not giving the flesh any sort of reason to thrive and to grow. That we need to clothe ourselves with Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for it. Picture it like when you have guests at your house and you make provisions for them, right? You make their bed and maybe you set some towels out. My mom's really good at that. When Andrew and I go there, she gets little chocolates and, you know, she makes, she makes provisions for us, right? She buys all the food I like and it's kind of cool. <laughs> but if she didn't want me to come, then she wouldn't do that. They'd have the door locked. Guard dogs certainly wouldn't have chocolates out, right? And whatever we don't want to welcome, we don't make provisions for it. You guys, you can't make provisions for your flesh. And some of us need to, to really make some sacrifices in our life so that we're not doing that. And maybe, maybe you shouldn't take that promotion because that promotion will be a provision for your flesh to make you an absolute money-hungry workaholic. When was the last time you heard somebody pray about a promotion? Oh, it must be from God. I don't need to pray about that. Yeah, you do. Because that might be the very thing that drives you away from Christ. You need to pray about our hobbies, our recreation. You need to pray about the things that we're involved in. Are they making provision for the flesh? Who's your God this morning? And it, he also says they glory in their shame. This basically means that they are proud of things that they ought to be ashamed of. You remember the story in Exodus 32, the children of Israel, they built the golden calf, right? And what they say, well, you know, uh, we took our earrings off and our gold chains and, and we threw it into a pile and woof, this calf came out. I don't know how it happened. It was just unreal. Well, it got worse than that because not only did they make a golden calf, but then they danced around it. They celebrated it. In fact, the original Hebrew tells us that it was basically a, a free-for-all orgy that they had around this golden calf and so they were celebrating the flesh they were being proud of that which they should have been ashamed of and you know what that can creep into our own life too we're, we're proud of things that we ought to be absolutely disgusted by people are proud of the fact that i gave that guy a piece of my mind you know and we're, we're real proud of that 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 i have the ability to blow my top I have the ability to tell people what I think as if that's some kind of an accomplishment. That's not an accomplishment. That's not an achievement. Anybody can do that. And look, you don't want to be giving away pieces of your mind because sooner or later you won't have any left. And I can't afford to give any away. I need it all. And we, we're proud of, of things that we ought to be ashamed of. And, and maybe you can think about some things in your life that you're proud about. 
Maybe you're proud about the fact that you rip off your company because, you know what, they don't treat us very good. So it's okay if I lie on my time card or if I steal some stuff because, you know what, we didn't get a bonus last year or I haven't got a raise in a couple years or the boss is a jerk. And so we justify things in our mind. In fact, we're proud of it because we're getting over on the man. Maybe we're proud of the fact that we cheated on our taxes because, look, the government doesn't need our money. It's okay. I can... You know, add a kid here or there, make up a social security number, hope I don't get audited, and it's wrong. And we shouldn't be proud about that. We shouldn't be making excuses for our sin and being proud of of these things. You know, have you ever noticed that like every nationality has an anger problem and we just kind of blame it on that? Well, I'm Italian. I'm Irish. I'm German. It's just the way we are. I'm Native American. Don't you know that we're angry? They shoved us all on reservations. I'm black, you know, we're mad at the world. No, that's stupid. Maybe the reason why I got an anger problem is because I'm like a mixture of all of them. (laughs) And so I, you know, I've got more excuse than anybody. But what what are the Irish mad about? What what are we mad about as an American who happens to be Irish? Because you have red hair? Sorry, Sean. (laughs) Is is that what we're mad about? What are you mad about if you're a German, you know? I, I have no idea. But we're mad, we're angry at the world, and we justify it because I'm this. Come on, that's stupid. Shouldn't be proud of these things. Who set their mind on earthly things. This is a good one. Whose mind is is focused on the earth. Jesus said, set your mind on things above. Paul tells us in Colossians to do the same. To, To store up your treasures in heaven, Jesus said. Not to be earthly minded. Jesus talked about... Uh, in the in the parable of the sower, that that one of the heart conditions compared to the soil is is where the seed falls amongst the thorns, and the thorns grow up and they choke out the word. And and what did he compare that to? He compared that to those who have their minds set on earthly things. He compared that to those who who are wrapped up in money and wrapped up in in the things that that make them happy, whose life is choked out by the patterns of this world. And again, you guys, it's not necessarily always a bad thing. It's very obvious. Okay, that guy left his wife. He's living with another woman. And so that's obvious that his mind is set on earthly things. Yeah, that lady, you know, she just went crazy and uh, she took all the money out of their bank account and, and she you know, took off with some other man and, and now they're robbing banks around the country or something. You know, that's real obvious to us that, that that's earthly and, and, and wrong. But you know what? It doesn't, again, always start that way. It can be pursuits that are rather harmless, that, that may even be good. A relationship, a job, a career, a goal, recreation. But all of a sudden, your mind begins to be set on, and it's all that you think about. And it's obvious that if it's, you know, something that we know is wrong, hey, we know it's wrong. Guys know that to set their mind on on lust is wrong, and, and every guy struggles with that, and every guy knows that's wrong. Ladies know that it's wrong if they, you know, think about murdering their husband, you know. If I could just get rid of this guy, you know, and you're just like thinking about ways that you're going to plan to do this. We know that's wrong. It's not good. And ladies, if, if that's you, you need to repent. Guys, if that's you, you need to repent. You know what? Ladies struggle with that. Ladies struggle with, with uh, bitterness and with 
anger and resentment, and, and, and so do men. And, and men often struggle with lust, and so do ladies. But you, you kind of get my drift. And if, if that's your thing, you know that's wrong. But here's the, here is the thing, is that is that maybe it's been some harmless stuff that's come into your life that you don't even recognize that your mind is set on earthly things. And, and all of a sudden, all you think about is that car that you're restoring, or that house that you're remodeling, or that next sale at Macy's, or the, the promotion that you're hoping to get. And, and, and we set our mind on, on things of the earth. And so he makes it very clear what it looks like to be a citizen of the earth. And I hope that's not true of us. But I think that often it is. And then he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And so now he wants to tell us, look, this is how we ought to be living. And when we realize that we're a citizen of heaven, it affects how we live our life. See, it isn't trying to reach a place of victory. It's not trying to come to a place where you're living right. It's understanding who you already are. The Philippians were Roman citizens, even though they lived in Greece. And they were able to live like Roman citizens. And so you guys, we're citizens of heaven. And even though we live here on the earth, it doesn't mean that we live like citizens of the earth. We understand that we have a much higher responsibility. Just like when you travel, when you travel to different countries and you have a U.S. passport, that means something. You, you have a confidence that you don't have to get wrapped up in the affairs of that country. That you're not bound by, you know, some of the laws that, that they are. That, that you don't have to become a citizen of that place to visit there. You're just visiting. You're just passing through. But you know, man, I got a passport and I can get on a plane and I can go home. And there's a confidence in that. And yet many of us, we have passports to heaven. We have the confidence in the promises of God that we are citizens of heaven and yet we're living as if we're citizens of this earth. And we've planted deep roots here. When the Bible says this life is, is a vapor, we're, li- we're acting as if this, this flesh that we live in is permanent. When the Bible says it's a tent, when you go camping, you don't make a permanent dwelling. You have the understanding and the realization that we're going to rough it here for a few days, make the kids happy. And then we're going to go home, right? You're going to have running water and you're going to have heat and you're going to have air conditioning and you're going to have at least some semblance of, you know, uh, order and not, you know, everything blowing around and dirt. And I'm not a big fan of camping. (laughs) I used to be when I was a kid, but now that I have to clean it all up, it's like such, it's so much work. My mom always says, it's worth it. Do it for the kids, you know. I'm thinking, I don't know if it is or not. But you pack the truck, and then you go out there, and you get filthy, just dog filthy. And the kids are filthy, and you're constantly cleaning them. And, you know, the paper plates are always blowing into the next campsite. And there's ketchup everywhere. And the hot dogs always have dirt on them. (laughs) And the dog is filthy, and he's barking constantly. You know, and you, you always forget stuff, and, you know, it's just a nightmare. You make 400 trips back to the store, you know, and you're washing your, your hair under a spigot, you know, at the little cabin that you got to walk six miles to get to it. And, and you just think, I can't wait to get to the cabin where I can finally wash my feet. You know, it's just like the joy of the day. Why do we do it? I have no idea. But sometimes 
we act, that's how we live our life in, the, in this life. Like, we're, this is it. I'm going to make a permanent home here. And, and we set our mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these terms, the Savior and the Lord, were terms that were actually borrowed from the Roman culture. They called the Caesar, the emperor, they called him their Savior. They, they called him their Lord. And, and that was part of the culture. And they were waiting. It would have been a big deal for the Philippian residents to have the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, come and visit them. That would have been a big deal. Everything would have stopped. You guys, we're waiting for our Savior, our Lord, to come back, to rescue us out of our flesh, to, to spare us from, from all of this. But we don't know when that's going to be. And so we keep living for him every day, waiting, anticipating that he's coming back. And he'll transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Whether by death or by the rapture, by the coming of Christ, we are going to be changed. We're going to be given a new body. And it's going to be an awesome thing, you guys. It's going to be an amazing thing. Jesus set the stage for us. Don't believe this notion that Jesus didn't rise bodily and physically. He did. Read Luke 24. Jesus rose bodily and physically. And there's groups that tell us differently and they're wrong. Jesus set the stage. He was the pattern for us. And we too will rise physically and we're going to be given a new body with no problems and no flesh to contend with and no hothead and no lust and no politics to deal with. None of the, the shame of this life, but everything that we love about this life. Relationships, friends, spending time with the Lord, worship. All of that's going to be a part of what we, we get to be in heaven. And he's going to conform this body, this lowly body, into a glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Here's the thing, in closing, is that Maybe you're struggling with all of this stuff that we talked about, being an enemy of the cross, being a person whose life is not lining up with your mouth, and you're struggling with your flesh, and you can see that the end of your life is destruction, that your God is your, ap your fleshly appetites, you're glorying in that which you should be ashamed of, you're setting your mind on earthly things, and you're struggling with that. Here's the encouragement, you guys, is that Jesus can subdue those things in your life. He's omnipotent. He's powerful. In the same way that he's going to take this lowly body and transform it into something awesome and amazing and radically different than what you have, it's the same power that resides in you right now that gives you the power to live with the realization that you're a citizen of heaven and that you don't have to obey your flesh. He can subdue those things in your life that you're struggling with right now. He has the power. You don't need anything other than Jesus. Jesus is who you need to cling to. His arms are what you need to fall into. As we sang this morning, when, when sin is all that I can see, your grace remains the shelter that I seek. You guys, we need Jesus. We need, to, we need him to subdue the power of the flesh, to break that pattern in our life. We need him to give us the realization that we are citizens of heaven so that we can start to act like it and live like it, so that we can influence this world, so that we can lead our kids to Jesus and not lose them, 
so that we can make a difference in our church, so that we can make a difference in our workplace. It's when we realize who we are, that we're a citizen of heaven. And it begins to naturally work itself out into our life as we allow him to subdue those struggles, those temptations, those proclivities toward the flesh. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, each one of us should be convicted by the words this morning. God, because all of us struggle. Lord, all of us at times take ourself off of the altar and we become an enemy of the cross, Lord. And maybe for some of us, it's been a pattern over time and, and Lord, we need to repent. We need to come back to you, God. We, we need to recommit our lives to you. Lord, for, for others, maybe it was just yesterday. Maybe it was this morning. Lord, but this, this afternoon, we place ourselves back on the altar as a living sacrifice. We dedicate our lives to you, Jesus. We recognize and we realize that we are a citizen of heaven and that there is a, a high calling in that as your ambassadors. Lord, we want to represent you well, God. We don't want to be an enemy of the cross. Lord, subdue those things that we're struggling with in our flesh. God, give us victory. Help us to realize that we work from victory, not toward it, God. Help us to realize who we are in Christ. Lord, help us and give us the power and the strength to begin to live as if we truly believe these things, as if we truly believe Jesus that you can change a life. As if, Jesus, we truly believe that you're as real as that chair we're sitting in or standing by. Jesus, that you're right here with us and you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Jesus, may that realization begin to change our life, change the way we live. Guys, there's going to be people up here to pray with you. And if you need prayer, I encourage you to come. Come while we're, we're singing. Come after. If, if you want these things to be true in your life, if you need prayer, if you need somebody to come alongside of you and, and to say, you know what? I, I understand and I'm not judging you, but I want to support you and I want to pray for you. And come up and get prayer. Like we talked about. Don't be prideful. Don't don't allow pride to separate you from what God wants to do in your life. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.